church is to be and make disciples. To follow Jesus and to seek to help others to follow him. To enjoy the gospel ourselves and to entrust the gospel to others. And what I pray this morning is that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, through your word, that you would once again afresh drive this message home deep into the soil of our souls. I pray, Father, that we would always be in the days ahead a disciple-making church, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Father, we need your, your supernatural help this morning as we seek to open the scriptures on the face of it. It looks like a fairly simple text. There is more here than meets the eye, and there is much for us in this season of our church. So come, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would, you would help us to, um, first of all, give, grant us the gift of illumination. Help us to see what's really here. Help us to um, connect here with what's in the, uh, the rest of the Bible, and then in a practical way. Uh, bring it home to our lives in a way that we can use. May this be news that we can use for our lives this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I had to guess, uh, the conversation probably went down at some point during Romans, um, which to the average person means 2007. Um, I don't know how you keep time in the life of a local church. I keep time by sermon series. And so it was a conversation that took place during Romans. That was 10 years ago. And I found myself sitting across the table at the branch office, which would be Scotty B's, um, <laughs> with a, a district leader and a, a church planter. He had planted a church in Hutch and uh, was an older senior saint in our movement, and he'd asked me out to lunch, and so I dutifully responded. And, um, his name is Bob Neuendorp. Uh, Bob is now at home with the Lord. He was a great man. And uh, for all of Bob's notable strong suits, um, tact, nuance, understatement, they were just not part of Bob's repertoire. In other words, it just didn't take Bob long just to flop out onto the table exactly why he had asked me out to lunch. And he asked me a question comprised of three words that day, which serve to haunt me routinely even today. And those words are as follows. You making disciples? Now, in one sense, I was startled by kind of the, the manner and, and the gruffness of the question. We had just sat down, and I pre- proceeded to respond to him with, we're preaching through Romans. I'm in chapter 9 right now. It's pretty tough sledding, actually. And, of course, there's the adult education hour at 9 a.m. Folks come to hear Wayne Grudem's systematic theology unfolded for them. Um, and I've got this vision for pastoral visitation in the homes of, of each of our members, sort of old school time visitation with people in their homes. I was happy to report these activities to him, right? The holy trinity of pastoral ministry, preaching, teaching, at least a desire for visitation was on the horizon. Now, Bob, to my surprise, seemed, shall we put it, underwhelmed. You wouldn't believe it if I told you, but he actually repeated his opening question again to me. But he added uh, two more syllables, this time to bring this statement to a grand total of five words that day. Okay, but you making disciples? I seem to remember he added a grunt at this point, too. And it was at this moment that the clouds parted for me, and I knew exactly what he was referring to because I read my Bible as well. And I was beginning to get a sense of just how far short my leadership of our fellowship was 
falling at the time of the ideal of what he was describing. The metrics of the Great Commission, in other words. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, Jesus asks our church today, you making disciples. As I said, this conversation took place in the year 2007, but it was the summer of 2010 where for the first time in our church, in the time of my pastorate, we began to walk out exactly what Bob Neuendorp was, was outlining here, not to mention the Lord Jesus, to actually pursue our God-given mission, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, another New Testament text as Matt mentioned to us, that specifies with clarity exactly what we're on about when we say making disciples would be 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2 is worth its weight in gold. If you'd memorize one verse in the New Testament, make it this one. One of the verses you'd memorize anyway. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.2. Do you hear that? That's four generations of disciples. What you have heard from me, that's generations one and two, entrust to faithful men, that's generation three, who will be able to teach others also, generation four. Are we making disciples? Well, the answer to that question 10 years down the road in the year 2017 is an unequivocal and forthright yes. Yes, we are. I'm... I'm really looking forward to telling Bob that in heaven one day. I, I can't wait to tell him that we, we, we got around to this. In this church, we not only have a mission, but we possess a clear vision. We call it our 2020 vision. It's a vision for evangelism leading to the baptizing of new believers, the welcoming of covenant members, uh, launching of community groups, uh, the establishing of a, of a counseling center in this local church, um, releasing of global missionaries, and Lord willing, one day, church planting. Every good vision has woven right into its fabric, though, a, a catalyst, a command center, an, an engine that drives the rest of the vision. And it's the goal for us of 30 reproducing leaders. You've already heard our text read for you, so if you don't have a Bible open, now is the time to do so. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. Luke 6, 12 to 16. And if you're using a red Bible, it's page 862. 862 in the red Bibles. So here's, here's the big idea today. At the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders, and Christ himself set the pattern. So at the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders, and Christ himself set the pattern. Now, this is a topic that's so important and so weighty that we're going to kick the door open on it this morning, and then we're going to follow this path over the next four Sundays, deep into the month of July. Um, more on that at the end of the sermon, but right now, let's just begin with point one. And allow me to say on the outset of three, these three points this, if, if you currently find yourself in a, in a personal discipling relationship, whether as a mentor or a mentee, I invite you this morning to evaluate how well it's going in light of this text. And by the way, for those of us who are raising children in the room, 
It goes without saying, but let's probably just go ahead and say it anyway for safety's sake, that if you are a parent currently raising children, you are engaged in the most profound opportunity to make disciples under your own roof. And I want to ask, how's it going? You have this brief, unrepeatable opportunity to mold these little ones that are in your family. Are you making disciples? Now, we could ask the question the other way. Um, Two, we could say whether you count yourself as a mature believer or rather an immature believer, but you're not involved in a personal discipling relationship. I just want you to ask yourself a question why that is. Whether you're not leading and you ought to be, or whether you need to be led and you're not currently being led. Every single one of us has some skin in this sermon. This is relevant for us. So here's, here's point one today. Making disciples who make disciples requires, number one, spiritual preparation. Making disciples who make disciples requires spiritual preparation. At the heart of our 2020 vision is this growing army of reproducing leaders. Christ himself sets the pattern, and this begins with spiritual preparation. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Twice we see in this verse the name he. He went out to the mountain to pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. Who's the he here in verse 12? Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, among other things, Jesus is God incarnate. He's God with skin on. What's he doing? He's praying. God's praying. Who's he praying to? He's praying to God. We could spend some serious time here pondering this truth, but we hasten on. The Bible is filled with realities like this that we ought to just raise our eyebrows. God is praying to God. Now, what's unique and completely unrepeatable and unparalleled about Jesus is that Jesus is not just fully God. He's also fully man. And as a human being, Jesus knew every sort of weakness and limitation a human being can know, except for one, he never sinned. He was a perfect man. He was a sinless man. And not to put too fine a point on it, what do we find this sinless God-man doing in verse 12? Praying. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. This phrase, all night he continued, is just a, it's a single word in Greek. And here in verse 12, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. Scholars say this word refers to an all-night prayer vigil. It's a very technical word. Have you ever prayed all night long? And I don't mean like you have insomnia and you're praying, God, help me to get to sleep all night long. I mean all night long. I never have. I never have. I've known Jesus for 19 years. I've never done that. You have something of such massive importance to do the next day that you can't afford a single wink of sleep Like Jacob said to the man in Genesis 32, you say to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You ever had a night like that? That's what Jesus is up to the night before the choosing of the 12. Now, the mission that we've been handed as a church by the church of Jesus Christ, from Christ who's gone before, we received it from Christ himself. 
And it's of such shattering importance that the very Son of God prayed himself to God unceasingly through an entire night without a moment's rest. This is quite a contrast, actually, to last week's sermon on, on Sabbath, isn't it? Last week, we flew the banner for the, the, the essential nature of Sabbath and the importance of having regular rhythms of rest in your, your day and your week and your year. This week is the reverse, right? To everything, there is a season. Jesus had such a monumental decision ahead of him that sleep simply was not in the cards for him that night. So what does this tell us? It tells us that making disciples who make disciples requires spiritual preparation. Um, If you're a Christian this morning and you have the privilege of discipling another person or perhaps a number of other people, you need to remember that you simply will not have anything to offer anyone until or unless you are filled up yourself. 2 Timothy 2.1, you might guess, is the verse that precedes 2 Timothy 2.2. And 2 Timothy 2.1 is equally, if not more important, than 2 Timothy 2.2. Listen to the Apostle Paul's inspired instructions for Timothy as he prepares to lay the disciple-making mantle on Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 2.1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You hear what 2 Timothy 2, 1 is? It's, it's permission. It's permission to enjoy the gospel yourself before you would seek to entrust it to others. You see what Paul is saying to Timothy in effect? He's saying, Timothy, these riches of the gospel that I'm now commanding you to entrust to others, make sure that you fill your pockets with plenty yourself first. Or he's saying this, this gospel meal, this lavish banquet that I urge you to spread before other people, just do yourself a favor, belly up to the table, tuck in the napkin, and grab your fork. Dive in. Or Timothy, this life-giving oxygen of the grace of Christ that I'm charging you this day to dispense to others, I'm summoning you, Timothy, breathe the air of the gospel yourself first. Yes, I think Jesus was crying out to his Father for wisdom and insight, coupled with the ability to be sustained for the ministry road ahead, yes, but this text in verse 12 is fairly broad. I think we have some interpretive leniency here. In other words, It's just possible that Jesus spent all night in prayer with his Father because he wanted to, because he enjoyed his Father's presence that much. Have you ever stayed up all night talking to a friend? I've done that. Sleepovers when I was a little boy, all night long until daybreak. It's actually true that the last time I stayed up all night talking to somebody, I married her. (laughs) It was our first date, actually. Now, don't read anything into this, but we went out to uh, eat, and then we brought a movie home to my fraternity house. We neither of us were believers. We watched the movie, and then we stayed up all night talking until sunrise the next morning. I could easily pass a whole night talking to another person. Is God a person? Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was ready to spill him all over the men that he was going to build into that next morning. He didn't need rest the next morning. He was chomping at the bit to get at them the next morning to build into them. 
as the Sermon on the Mount will prove. At the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders, and Christ himself set the pattern. So making disciples that make disciples requires spiritual preparation. Are you preparing? Are you enjoying the gospel yourself? Secondly, making disciples who make disciples requires intentional selection. Making disciples who make disciples requires intentional selection. Look with me in verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Now, while that story is true, the one that I'm going to tell you right now, I think, uh, probably isn't. Uh, The tale is told of the inventor and engineer Nikola Tesla. The story says that Tesla was once invited by automobile guru Henry Ford to his plant in Detroit to troubleshoot a problem that he was having. You know this story? So Tesla walks up to one of the walls on a boilerplate in the automobile um, making center in Detroit, the place where Ford worked, and he walked up to that boilerplate with a piece of chalk, and he made a small X on it, and he said, there's your problem, and he walked out of the office. Ford was overjoyed, and he asked for an invoice in the days ahead, and an invoice came in the days ahead for $10,000, which, while no small chunk of change today, this was an astronomical sum back in these days. Ford was baffled by the size of the invoice, and so he politely asked him for a breakdown of why he owed him $10,000, which Tesla gladly did. And before the second, and when the second invoice arrived, there were two line items on it. The first one wrote, one piece of chalk, $1. The second line said, knowing where to put a chalk X, $9,999. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? And why do we tell it? Because it outlines so beautifully the chasm of difference between knowledge and wisdom. There's facts and data and information. That's the what. That's one thing. But knowing when and how and with whom and for how long, that's the stuff of wisdom. Wisdom is what's supremely needed when we set about the matter of making disciples. And of course, I'm not even referring to the context of the personal discipling relationship. Of course you need a truckload of wisdom then. I'm just talking about who to choose. Wisdom is in order. And if you want to be a fruitful participant in our church's mission and vision, then you need to know that while uh, that making disciples who make disciples does require spiritual preparation, it also requires intentional selection. Now, there's a part of us that just doesn't like this. Right? It, it rubs us the wrong way. Probably it smacks of awkward and oftentimes painful moments we've experienced out on the playground or the ball field or the dance line competition that we didn't make. You know what I mean. The captain chooses this person, but he doesn't choose this person. So what are we to make of this? I mean, is Jesus doing no better than leading a popularity contest at this point? Well, this much is clear. He has a fairly sizable group from which to choose. That's evident from verse 13. Listen to verse 13 once again. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says, Luke makes explicit that the twelve are chosen from a larger pool. The choice of the twelve is a 
conscious and calculated choice. Now, the number 12 is likely simply to mirror the 12 patriarchs of the old covenant in Israel. So, the number is clear enough. But still, what do we do with this? And how ought it to influence the way that we choose disciples ourselves? Or to put it the other way around, those that we're willing to be mentored by. Jesus chose here. He chose some. He didn't choose others. Is this right? Yes, this is right. In fact, it's shocking. Just look at who he chose. <laughs> the Apostle Paul makes this very clear. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just look at who Jesus chose. Not a bunch of rich men, but a bunch of fishermen. Not a bunch of wise men or noblemen, but a, a tax collector, a Jewish nationalist, a doubter, and even a betrayer. Now more on the particulars of these men's lives in our final point today. But suffice it to say at this point that we ought not to determine who we're willing to disciple or who we're willing to be discipled by merely by outward appearances alone. If this wild collection of a dozen Jewish men from the margins of their ancient Near Eastern society tells us anything, it's that you don't judge a book by its cover, ever. Jesus didn't pad his roster with religious scholars and rabbis and holy men he didn't do it. He took 12 ordinary men and put into their hands the extraordinary treasure of the message of the kingdom of God. That's what he did. It transformed their lives. So for our part, the first thing we should notice is that disciples of Jesus are going to come in all shapes and sizes for us. And they likely won't be, by and large, the same folks that are celebrated by the godless culture surrounding us. That's the whole point. The second thing we ought to note in our situation is to Follow the inspired directions once again of the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Timothy 2.2, which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to what kind of men? Faithful men. Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Faithful men who will be able to do what? To teach others also. So there's, there are qualifications here when we think of the sort of folks that we want to invest our time in. Faithful folks who show some promise. They don't have to be world-class theologians. They don't have to walk on water, but they do have to be walking with Jesus. They do have to, what I like to call, have spiritual and relational warmth about them. Ones that will be able to entrust the gospel to others, the same gospel that they've received from you. Now, if there were time, we'd also unfold exactly why that word men in 2 Timothy 2.2 is poorly translated. Paul didn't use the Greek word for men. He used a very generic word that more naturally is translated people. Men and women. That's abundantly clear when we read Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, where Paul calls women to disciple other women. 
So while the overall pastoral teaching elder preaching ministry of the gathered church is exclusively reserved for men, that's true, the project of disciple-making is, is open to all, pouring into others what others have poured into us. That includes everybody, all hands on deck when it comes to making disciples, men and women, reproducing leaders here in this church. So in our 2020 vision, we're aiming for 30 folks by 2020, 15 men, 15 women. So that's point two. Making disciples who make disciples requires intentional selection. A final point today, and I'll make it with brevity. Making disciples who make disciples requires personal association. Making disciples who make disciples requires personal association. Here's how I want to come at this point. Let's just read verses 14 to 16, and I'll make a a few closing observations. Luke 6, 14 to 16. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, rather than walk methodically through this entire list, providing commentary on each one, like, for example, here's one little piece that I can't pass by. Jesus chooses Matthew, an employee of the Roman Empire, right? He was a tax collector, a Jewish employee of the Roman Empire. He also chose Simon the Zealot, who was a Jewish nationalist, a sworn enemy of the Roman Empire. Wasn't that a fascinating move by our Lord in an effort to promote reconciliation among this band of brothers? I could do that with some other things here, but let's just hasten on and, and look at names. Twelve names. Each of these men were known by the Lord. He knew their names. And furthermore, he spent gobs of time with them. With all of them. Now, while it's true that Peter, James, and John represented to what amounted to his three lieutenants, his, his inner circle, who got even more time from Jesus... Jesus invested his time and his teaching, his sweat, and eventually his blood in all of these guys. Over a period of three years, he gave these men everything he had. Now that I've used one of my favorite sentences in literature, I've got to tell you about the paragraph from which it came. I think I've probably shared this before. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in all of literature. By the way, you know that books don't change people, right? Paragraphs do. Okay? This paragraph came from a book written by Robert Coleman in his classic 1963 work called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is really poorly named. It should be called The Master Plan of Discipleship. This paragraph is, is this one. Listen to this. Back in the middle of the 20th century, Billy Graham was once asked by a Christian publication this question. If you were a pastor of a large church in a principal city, what would be your plan of action? Mr. Graham replied without a moment's hesitation, I think one of the first things that I would do would be to get a small group of eight or ten or twelve people around me, and we would meet for a few hours and they would pay the price. It would cost them something in terms of time and effort. I would share with them over a period of years everything I have. Can you imagine Billy Graham telling you that in covenant? 
Then he says, then I would actually have 12 ministers among the lay people who could in turn take eight or 10 or 12 more and teach them. He says, I know of one or two churches in our country that are doing this right now, and it's revolutionizing the church. Christ, I think, set the pattern. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it with a great crowd. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me there weren't too many results. The great results, it seems to me, came in his personal interview and the time he spent with the twelve. And Dr. Coleman concludes with this. Here, Mr. Graham is merely echoing the wisdom of Jesus' method. Amen and amen. I still remember the summer of 2010 when I read that paragraph to Seth Brickley in my office. And I said to Seth, I want to do that for you. I want to give you, over a period of years, everything that I have. And it's happened with others over the years. Brooks Waldron and Kyle Pitts and Peter Kling and Guy Runkel and Andy and Kara Kaler and Caleb Brickley and Matt Hendrickson and Terry Kruger and others. And the greatest treasure to me is not that they hold the treasure themselves, but that most, if not all of them, are actively seeking to bring that treasure into the hands of other people and trusting others with the message that they've been entrusted with. That's the sweetest fruit of all. And by the way, now that I've listed this group, I have to tell you this little story. It was probably five or six or seven years ago. Um, Caleb, my son Caleb and I were driving down Shoreline Drive. I suppose we dropped off Mia at dance practice or something. I'm just trying to spark up conversation with him in the car. I adjusted my mirror to ask him a question. He was young enough to be in the back seat. And I said, hey, Caleb, guess who daddy's favorite guy to disciple is? And he's really smart. He kind of, Seth. Nope. Guy? Nope. Caleb Brickley? You're getting warmer. Buddy, it's you. Oh, you should have seen the look on his face. He still is my favorite guy to disciple. Don't lose the opportunity with the disciples under your roof. And if you have another shot with the grandkids... Go for it again. I'll close with this, though. That's a sweet thing. Not all aspects of disciple-making are sweet. Some of them are downright bitter. There's no other way to say it. Jesus chose Judas. That's mind-boggling to me. He chose him. He handpicked him. You do this for long enough, over enough years with enough people, and you will get hurt. You will get burned. If it happened to our Lord, and you're serious about discipleship, it'll happen to you. I see some knowing looks in the sanctuary this morning. It has happened to you, hasn't it? I've trained a man. He spent countless hours in my home. He used to toss my daughter on his knee. We spent untold hours of time, long stretches on the highway together as we went to various events, time training and gospel ministry. A man who's now a passionate atheist. He mocks the Christian gospel as well as the church that he once loved. Now my prayer is that he's not a Judas. His story isn't over yet. He might just be a prodigal son 
a long way off in the far country. That's my prayer. It's a Luke 15 type situation. One day he'll return to the Father from the far country. But unless or until that time, there's just no two ways around it. It's just hard. It is hard to be a disciple maker. It's hard to be a parent. It is hard like flint because people really do betray Jesus. People really do break their vows to him. They do. But please hear me say it. It's worth it. It's worth every nanosecond. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it. I wonder if you're with us today, but you don't count yourself a Christian. Did you know that can change today? That can change right now. God made you. He created you to know you and love you and live in relationship with you and for you to know his glory and publish his glory everywhere you go. But you may also know and have a sense that your sin, your evil, your wrongdoing, it separates you from a holy God. And God hates your sin so much that it deserves eternal punishment forever in hell. And that's why he sent Jesus. He loves this world so much that he sent Jesus to live in your place and die in your place and be raised for you on the third day. And if you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be born again today. Like my my theology would tell me, you have been born again if you turn from your sins and put your faith in him. We'd love to speak with you more about that. You can talk with one of our elders here after the benediction or come talk to me. That's you. Let's wrap up. At the heart of our 2020 vision is a growing army of reproducing leaders, and Christ himself set the pattern. Now, I know we're a small church right now. That doesn't bother me. Okay? Doesn't bother me. I assure you that Jesus, who trained a mere 12 men, including Judas is not counting Christians on the day of judgment. Jesus is weighing them. He's weighing Christians. Our ultimate goal is not a certain quantity of disciples, but rather a certain quality of discipleship, right? So making disciples who make disciples requires spiritual preparation. Making disciples who make disciples requires intentional selection. And making disciples who make disciples requires personal association. Now we'll just end with this to whet your appetite for the weeks ahead. Making disciples who make disciples also requires being involved in the supernatural shaping of another person's convictions and character and ministry competencies. So beginning next week and throughout the month of July, we'll be studying Jesus' discipleship curriculum. Luke chapter 6, verses 16 to 49 will be our guide all during the next month. In the Gospel of Matthew... It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. In the Gospel of Luke, we can refer to it as the Sermon on the Level. And not only because verse 17 says he came down and stood with them on a level place, but it's also the case that throughout this sermon, he simply levels with his disciples, doesn't he? Jesus cuts to the chase. He is painstakingly transparent and upfront about what it looks like to become the sort of person who is a disciple who makes disciples. And it becomes the agenda for what your personal discipling relationship can look like. The Sermon on the Level is what you want to build into another person. So starting next Sunday, July 2nd, and continuing through the 23rd, we're going to walk through the content of Jesus' discipleship field manual. And you're not going to want to miss it. Right now, let's pray. Father, thank you. 
end where I began with the simplicity of this mission. This wild, multi-leveled, complex project of making disciples of all nations, it has this simple two-beat rhythm behind it. Be a disciple, make disciples. Be a disciple, make disciples. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to do just that. I, I pray that each one of us who follows Jesus today, on the one hand, we would be looking ahead on the path, that we would be looking for a man or looking for a woman or perhaps multiple men and women who can be building into our lives. None of us have arrived. I'm looking forward to meeting with a guy on Tuesday who's going to build into me. I, I pray, Father, that you would help all of us to be reaching out to, to grow more. And at the same time, Father, if we've been a disciple for more than five seconds, we have something else, to, we have something to say to somebody else. And so I pray that you would help us to look over our shoulder on the path behind us to see what we can do to build into the lives of others intentionally. Lord, prepare us for it spiritually. Help us to make careful, clear choices to do our best to just eliminate, there's, there's a margin for error here, but we want to keep it as small as we can. Invest in the right men, the right women. And then, Father, that we just let the chips fall and invest in them. Love is costly. Sometimes it turns out beautifully. Other times it's not, but it's worth it. Thank you so much for the mission that you've given our church. May this continue to be the heartbeat behind our entire vision, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.